if you want to do it again. Welcome to the third episode of the Unseasonable Gardener, where we celebrate uh, successes and failures in all things that grow. I am so excited today because I have a really special person, um, an incredibly talented, brilliant person with me today, Melinda Wilson. Uh, Melinda is a published poet, critic, and essayist. Uh, she is the curator for the Poor Mouth Writers Night reading series, and she is the founding editor and current managing editor of Cold Front Magazine. Um, she's also uh, assistant professor at Manhattan College. Welcome. Thank you so much, Julia, for having me. I'm so pleased to be here. She's also my sister-in-law. Yeah, full, <laughs> full disclosure. <laughs> and we've known each other for almost 16 years, it must be. Yeah, um, our relationship is uh, going to be legally driving soon enough. <laughs> so I'm here to talk about so many things with Melinda. Um, it, let's just jump right into it. So first, I'm going to ask you about your cover for your Facebook page. Yeah. What are we looking at here? Yeah, so I am. I have never been one to keep plants, really, until maybe... A year and a half, two years ago, um, just before the pandemic started, I got a new space, a new apartment, and so had these had this lovely casement window that I really wanted to put some plants in front of. So I have a um, few different things here. Um, they are all fairly easy to to care for. So I have a, I believe it's called a Sanservia. Um, in the left-hand corner there, which is a type of succulent. The plant directly next to it is also a succulent, but then one of my favorites is the parlor palm in the blue pot right there. Um, I love it because it fills out a space. Um, and so it always just looks very lush and full. Then I have the fern, which is the small fern in the middle. Um, and that plant is very difficult to keep alive. And I'm actually not very good at keeping my plants alive. And I would say that my biggest struggle is knowing whether I'm overwatering or underwatering them. Um, but yeah, and you know, during the pandemic, I would um, teach my classes on Zoom from this corner of my apartment. So these plants were my background and that helped me to feel like I was more uh, in the world of the living rather than just these little zombie avatars on, on a screen. So did you know the names of the plants before you bought them or did you buy them or you know accumulate them and then find out what the names were? Yeah, so the majority of my, two of the plants I actually, actually two of the plants that actually aren't even um, pictured here, uh, I inherited from a neighbor. And then the others, I actually went on a website called Bloomscape, which is wonderful, um, albeit quite expensive. Um, it was definitely an indulgence for me uh, to go on to Bloomscape and read about the different plants. Cause one of the mm -hmm. things that was really important to me was, are they pet friendly? Mm -hmm. If clippings fall, if leaves fall off them and my dogs, I have three dogs. So you probably hear panting in the background <laughs> currently. Um, they, uh, are prone to eat anything that they find on the floor. So I was concerned that, um, so, you know, I wanted to read about some of the plants. So I kind of just chose based on which plants were um, good air purifiers, um, pet friendly, and which looked happiest. Mm -hmm. So you are a lover of 
all creatures, big and small. So I know you mostly as like predominantly as an animal lover, like, you know, you've always had a dog, but you've always talked about all kinds of animals. And um, when you were growing up, you had like this amazing lab who would accompany you on all these like long journeys and travels and kind of you do like a lot of walking, right? Yeah. Max, he was a golden golden retriever, but they're, they're basically the same type of dog. But, um, but yeah. Um, so yeah, I've always had, I've always had dogs. When I was born, there was a dog already in the house. Um, and so I just grew up with dogs as being a natural part of a family environment, um, which I can't recommend more highly. I really think that they're great members of a family and they teach children a lot of at least taught me a lot of important um, life lessons along the way. So, so yeah, I've always had dogs. Creatures big and small is definitely true. I can't really think of a creature that I would wish ill on, <laughs> for sure. Who's, what's more difficult to take care of, a plant or a dog? A plant. <laughs> a thousand percent. <laughs> tell a me plant. more. A plant, it cannot tell me what it needs. And I understand dogs don't talk, but, you know. To be fair, I do, I talk to my dogs and in some ways they communicate back to me, right? So they don't have the language, but I'm very in tune with their body language, their, um, their, their energy in terms of, you know, are they experiencing anxiety, um, et cetera. So, so they can in a lot and they bark, you know, they are vocal. So they do tell me what they need. Plants, on the other hand, you know, they might wilt a little bit, but it happens after such a period that there's no way to tell what I did to precipitate that wilting, you know? So, um, so yeah, plants and fish, I notoriously kill. And so I'm quite proud of my little plant corner currently. It's amazing. There was a plant that was quite big in a pot that you were worried about, um, like yes. I think a year or so ago. How did yes. it, is it still around? How's it doing? It's dying a slow death. As we all are. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so in yeah. such, we, you know, yeah, we it's, are sti- it's still, it's still, it's hanging on, but it's ultimately, I don't think going to make it, but I was al- able to salvage a um, clipping from it, mm-hmm. which I'm hoping to, after this one should eventually exit this world, I'll repot the, the clipping, which right now I'm letting the roots grow out in a, um, in just some water in my kitchen. Nice. Um, can I go back? Can I take us back to you growing up, mm-hmm. if that's okay, and talk more about, um, because in your poetry, it, you you there's a sense of a connection and a wonder about the natural world, about creatures big and small, um, but also about like, I don't know, atmosphere and environment and things like that. So I know that your grandfather just recently passed and I'm really sorry. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, I think I probably get a lot of that from him. He's a very outdoorsy person, loved to explore, um, you know, traveled from one side of the United States to the other, stopping at different antique shows and auctions and um, lived on a campground for a good portion of his later years. Uh, so, yeah, so he was definitely influential in, in my love of the, um, the outdoors. And your sister on her Facebook kind of tribute to him mentioned him as like almost like restless, but not in a bad way. That is yeah. like, you know, it's time to let, let's go, let's head out. That is not a good attitude though for plants. And I was surprised to hear that he and your grandmother had a whole farm going on with like chickens and I don't know what else there was. So how do you yeah. like 
do that? How do you kind of, is that an oppositional thing to feel restless and want to travel and then also be tethered, right, to a thing that needs that care, whether it's a plant or an animal? Yeah, probably. I mean, I think that's, you're bringing up an interesting internal contradiction that many of us have, right? We have these internal conflicts. And I think that for my grandfather, you know, as much as he was sort of a restless wanderer um, at heart, he always had an anchor of some kind. So whether that be animals at home, also my grandmother, my grandmother's a bit of a homebody. So it's not, you know, she wouldn't always go on these trips with him. There were many trips where he just went on his own. So she was the anchor back home, you know, pulling him back. So, um, so I think that's sort of how he balanced those two things, um, those two kind of parts of himself. Yeah. My mom often accompanied him on those, on those road trips when she was younger though. That surprises me because I feel like your mom was also very much of the home and, you know, she loves animals. You've had a number of different animals and, you know, she works with cat rescue and is a very passionate, um, you know, animal lover and supporter and advocate. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. She, I think she has the same uh, sort of inspired sense of a traveler in her that my grandfather did, though, too, because... I mean, as much as she loves the, the she loves the beach, she loves the mountains, um, but she also is someone who finds a lot of um, energy and spirit in urban areas. Like she loves coming to New York City to visit me, for instance. Um, New York, she, I don't believe she had ever, she'd been once maybe before I moved uh, to New York City from New Hampshire. And um, now it's one of her favorite places. She always looks forward to coming. Does your dad like to travel too, or is he a bit more of a homebody? Bit more of a homebody, yeah. He likes being places once he's there. The actual act of traveling, though, I think is uh, the bothersome part. Yeah. So I want to get to like the most exciting, well, not the most exciting, but a very exciting part of this that you agreed to do. So, um, as I mentioned before, you have there's this a sense of in your writing with the themes where there's a complexity and ambiguity and ambivalence that is productive. Um, it feels, it's the conceptual, there's a lot of conceptual, there's a lot of conceit and metaphor, um, but also rich description of an environment often, I wouldn't say pastoral, but often connected to a, a nature. It could be an urban nature as well, right? Mm -hmm. Just like your garden. Yeah. Um, but no concept gets taken for granted. Mm -hmm. And that's why I get really inspired by your work because I know you're going to put me to work, mm -hmm. um, but in a way that I discover something new. Mm -hmm. And so you agreed to read uh, a poem, right? I did, I did. And I hope that you will still do that. I still will. Uh, how recent is this poem? Tell me like what the context was. You don't have to explain it, obviously, but just kind yeah. of like when did you write it, yeah. what the context was? What? Yeah, so this poem is called Woodland Fever. Um, and... You know, I I don't really know. I was playing with, so I was rereading a bunch of Anne Sexton's book, Transformations, which is all like re-imagined um, versions of Grimm's fairy tales. Um, and so there's like a little bit of a fairy tale element in here. Um, but also I wrote this very recently. Uh, and, you know, during the majority of the pandemic, I felt like I was in this major drought in terms of writing. I just could not get the creative um, juices flowing. And I would do daily poems to try and get things moving, and it just wasn't happening. Um, and then it's like out of nowhere, there was just this like burst of, and I wrote several of these style poems 
um, all at once. Uh, and this is one of them, Woodland Fever. So I, I feel like there is, you might hear some references to, or allusions, I should say, allusions to um, just little, little tidbits of various fairy tales. Mm -hmm. Woodland Fever. I'm all nightshade and lady slippers in the forest, all rotting log elk meat in the woods. My prince all along the stone wall in the pine grove, still sleeping. My ghost is there sweeping needles from the dirt floors, all snow white in the tiny cottage over the seven jeweled hills. I'm all heartbeats and thumping rabbit feet when I'm brave. Because to be brave, I have to first be afraid. I'm spinning silk in a cellar, these syllables keeping me calm. I'm all peach cobbler bruised elbows and shoulders and knees, flies on rainwater mushrooms make me think of the early days when I was all clay beds and newly born toads from the marsh, all pond scum puddles and skipping stones, the thicket and its undergrowth lead to the clearing in the wood. I arrive like a fawn wobbles toward home, toward the herd. Thank you so much. You're very welcome. That was amazing. And um, I, one of the things that I celebrate about your work too, though, is that it's deeply rooted in a commitment to social justice and in particular, um, you know, exploring gender, sexuality, how, how people t get taken for granted, right? If, yeah. if no concept gets taken for granted for you, you're also kind of really trying to address the issue how, of how some people by way of their sex get taken for granted or don't have the same rights. So definitely I would say feminism is a strong uh, part of your, you know, work. Yeah, yeah. Um, I sort yeah. of like to think of myself as like eco-feminist. Ooh, I like that, yeah. And of course, we know Audrey, Audrey Lord, like the useful, like, the uses of anger, right, as mm -hmm. a um, productive vehicle mm -hmm. um, to to achieve a change, but also kind of have that kind of reflective um, <laughs> reflective uh, exploration of it. Yeah, I wanted to talk about Eve with you, mm. just because Eden, right? We know the Garden of Eden. It's a very gardeny concept. It's a very gardeny story. The idea that um, God had made this world, right, and every day toiled to create, like, different layers of it, and Eve messed up, right? That's that's the story, but she messed up because yeah, she wanted myth. to know things, mm -hmm. um, and you've written explicitly about Eden um, in, uh, in other poems, but what's your take on Eve? <laughs> uh, she was framed. Tell me she, more. She was framed. <laughs> um, she's the fall man. She's the scapegoat. She's, you know... She is the perfect, I think, um, yeah, just, just the perfect scapegoat. So we just blame everything on this one woman and we let it be a mythology or an origin story. So we always are going back to it, right? Mm -hmm. So because it's an origin story, we continue to, to tell it and we continue to go back to it. Um, and it's a way to perpetuate patriarchy. It's a way to perpetuate the myth of virginity, even. Um, and um, as George Carlin would say, it's all bullshit and it's bad for you. <laughs> um, so one of your lines is, to be brave, you have 
to first be afraid. Mm. Is that right? Yeah. Do you think Eve was, let's pretend she was a real person. Let's yeah. actually say that, you know, this myth is true, or maybe even though we can, there's how many Eves are out there right now, right? Yeah. Who are um, curious, lusting after not lusting, right? What, what a loaded word, but like they want to know, they feel that they probably um, are entitled to knowledge and self, you know, sufficiency and to be able to advocate for themselves. And then they get framed, right? Yeah. Do you think she was afraid? Did she know what she was doing and went for it anyway? Or was she kind of in the same blissful way that Adam was ignorant? And then she set the story as she framed him, right? Or set him up to fail without his knowledge. Yeah. Was she ignorant? Yeah, that's a really interesting, um, interesting question. I, I can't really say, but what you're, what you're talking about right now makes me think of, you know, the, the women in Afghanistan currently, right, who are finding themselves, um, maybe they were able to be educated in the past 20 years, um, but now uh, the Taliban's back in, in power. Um, and so their seeking of knowledge, their desire for knowledge is suddenly, again, a point of, um, of fear. It's something that they have to fear. And if you make knowledge something to be feared, then you keep, you keep ignorance, right? You maintain and you preserve ignorance across a population of people. Um, so whether or not, you know, I, I don't consider myself, um, Obviously, I don't consider myself religious. I don't know. I don't have like any sort of like theological background or or education. I mean, I did go to a Catholic school, but um, which might no, be the cause of that. <laughs> yeah, no serious, no serious biblical study um, other than the basics. So I don't want to go too far in interpreting Eve's Eve's character um, or Eve's role in that in that first story. But if I had to guess, I would say that Eve must have felt fear. She must have. Because her very purpose, right, she was created to serve. Mm -hmm. She was created for somebody else. So she never was her own until she gained that knowledge, until she she ate of the apple or of the tree of knowledge. Um, so I would assume that but yeah, in the way that in the way that a lot of women experience, many if not all women experience fear, I would I would say that Eve likely did as well. So for her to refuse the position of servant, or you know, that's to be bravery. procured for Adam, it's bravery, and also she had to topple the patriarchy if, and it was not going to be the way that you know those male figures kind of fashioned it to be. Yeah, it had to happen. It had to. Um, Every feminist needed Eve, right? Like she was the first feminist, I suppose, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. in that particular story, lineage. Yeah, it's, I love, just like with classic fairy tales, mm -hmm. I love yeah. thinking things from that marginalized, you know, character or somebody who was taken for granted in the story. Yeah. And a lot of really powerful poets like you are finding, you know, um, really rich things to from that, to yeah. call it from that perspective, because you get to reframe things, yeah. right? She was yeah. framed. You get to reframe yeah. it. In your poem, you start off with saying, I'm all nightshade and lady slippers. Mm -hmm. And it's like, I'm all this is such a declaration, right? It's like yeah. an ownership, it's empowering. But yeah. we know that nightshade, I think, is poisonous, yep. right? Speaking about dogs and eating yep. plants, they shouldn't do that. And from what I read, just a cursory exploration, lady slippers are incredibly delicate. Yes. They actually have to take 
they take a really long time to grow mm -hmm. and so you have to protect them so there's a lot of um here um not isolation but kind of a sense of danger right a sense of yeah kind of a separation but at the end you say i arrive yeah like a fawn wobbles toward home toward the herd yeah so there's a contradiction yeah. that envelopes this poem yeah. of the danger that you feel within yourself the power yeah uh to hurt to right. harm uh the, the but the delicateness that you have to protect yeah. and yet you still nevertheless feel that compulsion or kind of um to to find home or to to find the herd the yeah. pack right yeah and i think that Wow, I mean, this is a really powerful way to reflect the ambivalence that a lot of, you know, female caretakers feel or people sure. who work. And now, like, you know, depending on the nature of the household, my partner and I, Jen, we both kind of share equal um, roles in, in caregiving, and we both feel like limited, right? Yeah. We both feel like we're not giving enough in the in the way that our uh, society is structured. I wanted to ask you a little bit about the poetry world because you've definitely been in it. You've been to all the KGB readings, and you know all these amazing, incredible poets. Um, is it hard, is it, um, do do female poets or female identified poets, do they feel more of like an obligation to be one or the other, the dangerous or the kind of caretaker, or are they allowed to have as much agency in that ambivalence, contradiction? Um, the other word I think I said was um, ambiguity, right? As male yeah. poets today, because we know kind of Anne Sexton's world, Sylvia Plath's world, we know those, what, what was kind of, what they struggled with, but like, what's the status of female poetry today, and what are we allowed to say? Yeah, <laughs> and do the, uh, that's a that's a big question. But I think that um, I think that we are allowed to do and say everything and anything, whether or not people respond to it, the readership responds to it in a positive way is a different um, a different question. But I think you know thinking about current poets current women poets who who i admire i tend to see the women that are pushing boundaries um and you know i think writing a, about these these internal contradictions too like the nightshade and the lady slippers how women um or i as a woman often feel simultaneously like i'm seen as a threat because I am a woman, but also I am uh, supposed to be seen as delicate and in need of protection, right? So this this comes into play when I think of a lot of like the reaction to the Me Too movement and, um, you know, high profile men saying things like, well, or not even high profile, any man saying things like, well, you know, you never know what you can say or do anymore with a woman because she might just make up a story, you know, and then your whole career um, goes down the drain. Right. So I don't know. I, I think that the um, I don't really know where I'm headed with that, because I think that the, the question is asking me in some ways to look at this this contradiction and and i don't know analyze it but i i really don't know that i can i mean i know that there's the power that you feel in the nightshade and there's the the delicateness that you see in the lady slippers and those two things came together for me you know when i was younger i used to spend a lot of time in the woods behind my house and we had um lady slippers that oh, okay. would that would grow in the 
woods behind um, behind our house. And they there weren't a ton of them, but they were, you know, you could you could pretty easily find them at the right time of year if you just were walking around. And I always found them to be so beautiful. They look almost like an organ, like an internal organ that is on the outside of the body. That sounds really um, beautiful. Yeah, we should look at it. We should look at a picture at, at some point. Um, I'll post a picture. They're, they're beautiful, but they're also a little terrifying in in that way because they look like they look so delicate like they should not be just Exterior. in open air they yeah. shouldn't be external yeah. exactly and um i think that for many women myself included that in and of itself is a struggle we try to keep everything internal because we're trying to protect everybody else mm -hmm. and we're often told that we're too emotional or we're too this or we're too that and so you know I know that I spend a good deal of my energy trying to temper my internal from and making sure that it doesn't become external, right? Um, so I don't know. There was something in the lady slipper that that seemed like a contradiction in and of itself, and I just wanted to wanted to get the image in the poem somehow. Going back to what you were talking about with with what women can and can't do, I mean. I don't know what to say to that question because I think women can do whatever they want to do. Whatever they fucking want to do. <laughs> whatever they fucking want to do. Because, well, you know, here, luckily. Yeah. Um, I think, so when I was growing up um, in a Russian household that was extremely gender normative, like it, mm. it felt like we were like 10, 20 years behind even American culture. And there was always this prerogative to dress me up, mm -hmm. to make me pretty. Um, you know, all that kind of stuff. And I resisted it. I was like also the one that roamed the forests and the woods and yeah. like wanted to like yeah. just be off on my own and explore. I wanted to be an explorer. Yeah. I was an explorer. Yeah. You know? And um and they called that a tomboy, not an explorer. Right? Which is inherently problematic, I think. Yeah. But yeah. yeah, I was called a tomboy, not an explorer. But I was an explorer. By the way, men are very emotional. <laughs> oh, I know. <laughs> Highly I know. emotional. And they but they get rewarded for it because this red is more like testosterone or masculine or aggressive right, right? but actually right. it's highly emotional it's red because, is power yeah you don't have your stuff in check yeah. you're losing it right um but we we uh excuse I think that brett kavanaugh mm. Mm -hmm. and i think i resisted gardening for a long time mm. i didn't i i wanted to have kids you know because i always did um but you know having children having a garden growing your own food cooking those were things that in my culture like at least where i was growing up that was like mm -hmm. A very you know that was like the woman's domain yeah and then things domestic shift, domestic yeah and things shifted a bit when my i saw my dad cooking a ton like he just loves to eat the man loves to eat yeah and he loves meat yeah and he's a hunter and he's very much like when he when he you know gets something he processes it and we consume it like mm -hmm. so um there's kind of like a food chain and kind of like a circle of life thing that was going on in my uh wheelhouse which i thought was really cool um, and then the gardening, like the the episode before this one where I had my mom on, you know, gardening was a way of life. Like yeah. for in the Soviet culture, you had your little plot of land. And if you didn't grow potatoes or, you know, uh, carrots that year, you weren't going to eat. And right. so both, you know, men and women identified were, you know, working the garden. Yep. Um, and that was really interesting. And so I think it took me a long time to start growing things of my own, though, because I didn't want to be read as nurturing like mm. on point right mm. and so yeah. i don't know what this project is doing with that the unseasonable gardener is about pushing back mm -hmm. um and i'm wondering if you've seen any kind of 
poetic forms or maybe even essays where you see uh, female writers kind of pushing back in the form itself, or maybe your students are getting excited about a particular form that's, um, you know, doing something to really kind of reframe. Let's go back to that word reframe yeah. the, the line of vision, yeah. the line of assumption. Yeah. Well, I have two things to say about this. The first is somewhat unrelated to poetry and poetic form and more related to your little um, anecdote. But like, I think that you should think about, you know, raising your garden and raising your children and nurturing, you know, all of these things around you and helping them to grow as like, maybe this is going to sound silly now, but like as, as raising and fortifying your own army, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Like these are the things and the people that sustain you. So they're, you know, I, I wouldn't think about it as, oh, I'm just filling this domestic role. And I understand where that comes from, you know, the, the lineage that's behind that, the history that's behind that, the heteronormative gender roles that, that are behind that. But, um, you know, I would encourage any woman to think about anything that she cultivates as being a part of her army. Mm -hmm. Her own know. resource. Yeah. Yeah. So that's the first thing. The second thing in terms of poetic form, um, I think any form. Mm -hmm. Really, any form that women are working with within is a pushback because and, form, I mean, came from our male bards, right? right. So. And when a woman works in it, she she can't the the voice that the the voice that it takes on is fundamentally different and often oppositional, especially when we think about the intersection of ethnicity, race, nationality, and femalehood, sure. right? Yes. Um, well, you are a part of my army, and you have been and for sixteen years. So there we go. We are very strong. Yes. Uh, this has been. Lovely. Any last comments before we go? I mean, I just love talking to you. I hope to have you back on. Yeah, I would love to come back on. Maybe I'll write something new before I do. Um, no, just thank you so much for having me. Thank you for doing this. I think it's an awesome project. Um, you're part of my army too, as are these three little furry beasts that have been mating, making a lot of noise around here. Uh, so yeah, thank you, Julia. Let's go eat tacos. All right. <laughs>